Welcome to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. And we are back with our another panel discussion, but this time with a twist. We are coming to you today with our three favorite panelists, Representative Walter Hudson, John Rillo, and Preya Samsonar, to break down two big topics from this week, the 2023 election results and a third Republican presidential debate. Of course, always thank you to you listening. Be sure to tweet us at BBBreakPod to let us know what you think. If you agree with us, let us know. If you disagree with us, especially with Michael, of course, keep us posted. Quick round of intros, then we will kick things off. Once again, we are pleased to welcome Representative Walter Hudson. Hudson is in his first term in the Minnesota House and represents the Albertville, Otsego, and St. Michael area. Next up is GOP strategist, operative, and friend John Rouleau. John has long been active in Republican politics and currently serves as the executive director of the Minnesota Jobs Coalition. And our third panelist is Preya Samsadar. Preya has worked for the MNGOP and the RNC and is an overall messaging pro. As a reminder and full disclosure, Priya is currently working on behalf of Nikki Haley's presidential super PAC. Before we get into all the fun surrounding our Republican presidential debate, we are going to go local with a breakdown of the 2023 election. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the show. To our esteemed panelists, thank you for taking some time out to join us once again. As we know, all politics is local, and all of you have a lot of experience working the political circuit right here in Minnesota. While off-year elections don't get as much attention as presidential or midterm years, a lot of big things happen this week, so I am interested to get your take on the recent results. Let's get into it. When it comes to local elections, a big race folks were watching in the state was the Duluth mayoral race, which resulted in incumbent Mayor Emily Larson losing to a challenger and former state legislator Roger Reinert. This is a big loss for the Minnesota DFL, who was heavily backing Larson, and a takedown of a progressive mayor in one of Minnesota's biggest cities. So let's break down what happened and what this means. Uh, Representative, kick it over to you. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the city of Duluth and the North Shore generally. Um, family has spent a lot of time up there. We got a, a cabin not too far away in northwestern Wisconsin. Um, but I must confess, I'm not deeply familiar with the internal municipal politics uh, of Duluth. But I do find it interesting that you have a, a centrist, moderate, self-described Democrat um, beating a progressive in an area of the state that is generally considered to be um, a, a progressive, very blue area. And I suspect that it probably has something to do with the particulars of his relationships and the competency of his campaign, uh, which I think is something that will translate when we uh, switch over to talking about the school board races as well, that it's tempting to make generalizations when you look at election results, but very often the devil is in the details in terms of what particular candidates did and, and how particular campaigns were operated um, that resulted in, in being effective and taking advantage of the unique opportunities that they were presented with. At any rate, Duluth is no doubt going to benefit from having some measure of sanity injected into their municipal politics. Um, John, this was uh, not necessarily a close race. It looks like it was about 60-40 in favor of uh, the the new mayor, Roger Reinhardt. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, so I think uh, you know, Representative Hudson was on the right track there and that local races often come down to local issues. Uh, and you know, for uh, from my understanding on the outside looking in, a lot of what this came down to was a discussion about kind of the basic municipal services. Uh, and last winter, we got a lot of snow. The North Shore got a lot of snow. Uh, and my understanding is that Duluth did not do well with those basic city services, uh, that they've seen uh, homelessness on the rise, that they see uh, people kind of outside of the uh, stores that are selling uh, pipes and tobacco and uh, kind of the synthetic drugs, uh, and that the city is kind of shifted away from being able to accomplish uh, what a lot of people expect their city to do. I think that was where a lot of the contrast came on this race and that uh, former representative uh, and Senator Reinert uh, was out there talking about the city needs to do these basic things. Uh, and, you know, there's always kind of the nice to haves uh, from 
you know, when you're looking at what government should do and shouldn't do, uh, and then there's the things that are the government's uh, obligation that they do need to do. Uh, and I think that's really where the uh, where the differentiation came on this race. Uh, so we'll see uh, what uh, Roger Reinert is able to do up there. Now, Priya, I know you've spent the last uh, number of years working more on a statewide or, or national scale when it comes to politics and messaging. But uh, any insight for you on on what happened in Duluth, and uh, is it is it what we're going to see on a larger scale? So, like Representative Hudson, I uh, you know I really didn't pay too close attention to this race, but I will tell you two things. One, whenever I talk to any of my friends uh, when we were over at the U of M back in the day. It was always we'd vote for the person who threw the most salt on the road. So uh, if if Duluth's not getting that, uh, you know, she kind of asked for it. <laughs> but in, in reality, I think what you're seeing, it's not just school boards. It's not just the local elections. I think Minneapolis and St. Paul are probably the the outliers in all of this. But I think a lot of folks are kind of looking for some sanity amidst all of the chaos. They're looking for for folks who are actually going to get the job done. They're looking for folks who have a plan. It's not just, I want to, you know, bite back at, you know, Democrats or Republicans. It's not just fighting and consternation and, and backbiting. It's not just, well, he's wrong. They're wrong. Everybody's wrong. It's, I have a solution. I have a plan. I have a vision to make things better. And so when you kind of look at what's going on in our cities and our communities right now, it's not hard for folks to look around and say, okay, well, things are going to hell in a handbasket. And so when they see somebody who's not offering that kind of divisive message that we've kind of gotten used to over the last few cycles, but are offering solutions to problems that they're seeing in their neighborhoods and their communities, that's going to look very attractive to folks who are just like, let's quit with the politics. Let's quit with all of the backbiting and everything else going on. And let's just get some things done. Fantastic. Michael. I want to uh, agree with what's been said previously by all of our esteemed guests, but I want to point out a couple of things. The Democrats invested very heavily in this race, and not just the Minnesota DFL, but also statewide elected officials. Emily Larson was endorsed by an all-star team of Minnesota DFLers statewide, and it was a clear decision they made. They wanted to back her publicly, and they did a lot of organizing, in, and they spent a lot of political capital to try to get her over the finish line. The other thing I would point out is the DFL very aggressively I think did a web, they did a website going after Roger Reinhardt. Roger is Risky, I believe, is the website. I was speaking with Jeff Kolb, who's been a guest before but, uh, earlier today, and he brought that to my attention. And I was really surprised by the messaging. Um, the, the, the framework of this race, from the perspective of the DFL, was that a state senator, former legislator, someone who was very active in the community, was a risk and was someone who was untested and was dangerous, in essence, to have him be elected the mayor. And that's very aggressive messaging by the DFL. They were clearly, they did, they pulled out all the stops to get Emily Larson over the finish line. Statewide elected officials spent their political capital to try to get her over the finish line. And they lost. They plain and simply lost in a very uh, significant way. And I think the DFL, we haven't had a lot of opportunities to talk about that before. But I do think in future episodes, we should break down where the DFL miscalculated in this race and what, what it means for them. Because this was a stronghold. There's a good area for them, and they invested a lot of resources and political capital, and they lost on election day, and we should talk about that more. Absolutely. And uh, one thing I have read a little bit about and, and heard from some folks when discussing this race is that, you know, crime was a really big issue uh, on voters' minds. You know, that's something we certainly hear about that down in the Twin Cities when it comes to crime in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Don't necessarily always hear about it as much in, in Duluth or Rochester, but it, it certainly is an issue. Um, a lot of things are shut down on the weekends because of the rampant crime, because of the issues that they're having in Main Street Duluth, in their communities. Um, 
and that's something that they didn't feel like Emily Larson uh, was was addressing, um, similar to like what Priya was saying about just those basic functions that folks are looking for for a city elected leader. Uh, they were not getting from Mayor Larson. And so hopefully they will get that from their new mayor. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out, having somebody a little bit more moderate um, when it comes to being the mayor of one of our biggest cities. So time shall tell. Moving on to now uh, a place where um, progressives were a little bit more successful than they were in Duluth, uh, city council races. So there is certainly a lot to get into when it comes down to Minneapolis and St. Paul city council races. Both became more progressive. Both are expected to bring more challenges to their respective mayors. So let's break down what a a possible near veto-proof majority means for Jacob Fry in Minneapolis and how things will shake out in our state's capital with more headaches for Melvin Carter. John, I want to throw it to you. Uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis resident, you've had a, a lot of experience living in those cities. Uh, what's what's your take when it comes to city council races? Yeah, so uh, yeah, current resident uh, in Minneapolis with my family and uh, kept our eye on the city council election uh, to a uh, slight extent anyways. Uh, our ward did not have a particularly competitive race uh, and had kind of an interesting uh, we get branded as the conservative ward uh, by the far left in Minneapolis uh, for uh, whatever that means. Uh, so there was a race in our ward uh, where there were two of the more conservative DFLers, and by that I mean uh, not explicitly socialist, uh, who were running. And uh, it was sort of interesting to watch. One of them was a little bit more pro-police. One of them was a little bit more anti-bike lane. Uh, so kind of where they drew the contrast with one another. Uh, but our incumbent uh, was reelected across the city. I think we didn't see uh, quite those results. One that I was watching uh, fairly closely was uh, Council President Jenkins race, uh, where she won by, I believe, 38 votes uh, pending uh her opponent's opportunity for a state-funded recount, uh, just below that half percent uh, margin there. Uh, so kept an eye on that. But I think you know, concerning for the city of Minneapolis is that uh, four of the five DSA candidates who were on the ballot uh, succeeded. Uh, thankfully, they didn't get a veto-proof majority, and Mayor Fry has already said that his veto pen is ready. Uh, so I'll be curious to see, but Minneapolis has a lot of challenges facing it right now. Downtown uh, is not what it used to be. People are still not uh, fully back in office. Uh, we're seeing that restaurants and stores are struggling. Uh, and there's a big problem on the horizon as you look at what that means with the less expensive office space, with the vacant office space, uh, and how that's going to shift uh, the property tax burden onto uh, you know, homeowners and renters uh, and look at what that is. So uh, my hope is that the city of uh, the city council doesn't go too far off the rails uh, because there are some serious things that they need to address. Uh, and we are in a place where uh, some tough choices, I think, need to be made uh, with regard to the budget, because uh, like everything else, living uh, in Minneapolis is, continues to get more and more expensive. Uh, and that hurts everybody across the board from our seniors to our renters to the young families that are trying to move in. Uh, and, you know, the city needs to get back to the basics. Uh, they still don't have enough sworn officers on duty. Uh, crime remains out of control. Uh, they'll tell you that crime is down this year. What they don't tell you is that that's still way up from 2019 numbers. Uh, and we've got to get things going back in the right direction and get, uh, get the city back where it can have a stable footing? Uh, well, first of all, I'm very glad I don't live in Minneapolis anymore. Um, I I think I speak for anyone who's moved out of Minneapolis since 2020. I, things just have not gotten better since the riots happened. Um, it's been, to, to use the phrase I used earlier, it's gone to hell in a handbasket. When you go downtown into Minneapolis, you know, it, it looks like a ghost town. It's barren. There aren't people walking around. The restaurants are are sad looking. <laughs> I think that's really the only way to describe it. Uh, you know, it, it's sad. You know, it's not this 
It's not the same Minneapolis when I was in high school, where people were constantly out and about, where restaurants were thriving, where restaurants had staff and there weren't weird wait times. I mean, when you look at the makeup of the Minneapolis City Council now, yeah, Jacob Fry has the ability to veto things, but at the same time, are is the, are things actually going to get done? I mean, we still don't have enough officers to John's point. We are go- expected to, you know, see some economic policies that are going to drive businesses further out of of Minneapolis that are going to make it even more impossible to fill those empty spaces. It's going to make it harder for people to want to have a business in Minneapolis. Property taxes are already way too high for the property sizes that you see in Minneapolis. I mean, it's just, it's not a good situation overall. Minneapolis is not doing a good job of trying to court businesses, to court residents, to come back into the city. And I doubt with the current makeup of the Minneapolis City Council, it's going to get any better. I mean, I mean, think about it. Andrea Jenkins is a Black trans woman. And she was, for all intents purposes primaried by a white guy who said he was more affected by the George Floyd riots than she was. And Andrea Jenkins barely made it out by 38 votes. I mean, like, think about that. It it just, it doesn't make any sense. So I think for, if you're looking ahead to the Minneapolis city council and the things that they're going to do, I I honestly got to say, buckle up folks. It's about to get a whole lot worse. All right. I am also changing things up today. I am throwing Michael into uh, the round robin rotation. So Michael, turning it to you. I have, I lived in Minneapolis. My wife, I lived in Minneapolis from 98 to 2004. Uh, Every day I'm reminded how wise of a decision that I made to move out and and move to Egan. There is nothing that came out on election night uh, that should have any bit of faith in the development that's going to happen in either Minneapolis or in St. Paul. It's frustrating. It's challenging to watch. I want to just point out one thing, because I want to defer more to the guests, is that there was a letter written roughly a month before the election by some prominent Democrats in the city of Minneapolis who raised concerns about the DSA candidates that were running. And there was a concern raised that they were, part of the reason they spoke up is that they were concerned that there would be an anti-Semitic majority on the Minneapolis City Council. And I don't think we're at a full anti-Semitic majority, but we're pretty close if we're going to follow their logic. And that should be really concerning. I think that to think about where they, where the, what could have happened in Minneapolis had they gained more control, it's going to be interesting to watch and see. But there's going to be some real contrast. I don't have a ton of faith. If I was living in Minneapolis and St. Paul right now, I would, I would have moved out a long time ago. But if I was living there today, I would be moving out because there's just not a lot of, I think, a common sense debate and discussion that's going to be happening there. And I feel sorry for what is in store, I think, for Minneapolis and St. Paul in the long term. But we'll see what happens. What I also do think is Minneapolis went even farther to the left and St. Paul is going to provide some contrast opportunities for Republicans to message statewide. If you want to, if you want to see what Democrats could do statewide, if they had more of the keys to the store and more an opportunity to get entrenched, uh, the Democrats' policy paper and their position paper, people need to look to Minneapolis and St. Paul as, a, as an example of where to go. Thanks. Uh, Representative Hudson, now you don't live in the cities, your uh, northwest suburbs there, uh, but certainly spend a lot of time in St. Paul. What, what do you think about these two uh, outcomes for the city council races? Yeah, I mean, I used to live in St. Paul in my early adulthood, and I spent several years working in Minneapolis uh, in my early adulthood, and I'm very familiar with those areas. And uh, I've done ride-alongs recently with both the police department and the fire department in Minneapolis. And in particular, when I was doing my ride-along with the fire department, it was interesting because we were driving by, you know, I would comment on places that I used to haunt, restaurants that I used to go to, places that I used to visit. And I would be advised by the person who was uh, who I was with that, well, you don't want to go there anymore. Like never go there again. Like that's a bad place to be, right? Like So it kind of goes to the, the anecdotal uh, and I think more than anecdotal point that quality of life in Minneapolis has deteriorated very palpably, palpably in uh, recent years. And that's going to get worse. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, one of the general observations that I've had 
uh, during this this first year of my term as a state representative, um, and just as an observer of politics, both locally, statewide, and nationally, is that there seems to be this increasing disconnect between what people care about, um, what their priorities are, and the electoral and policy outcomes that they're seeing from elections and from legislative processes, uh, regardless of the level. And I think Minneapolis stands as a pretty prominent example of that, because if you one of the standout statistics from um, Tuesday night was that the low turnout in Minneapolis for these races, I think it was something in the area of 47%. And so what that tells me, I mean, 47% participation, that translates to less than half of the people living in your city having any impact upon the direction that it goes. So just that objectively demonstrates a disconnect between the the outcomes that you're seeing and what people care about and what people want. Um, and there's there's an opportunity there that I think is highlighted by the last thing we talked about, what happened up in Duluth, for someone or something to come into that space and create a, a kind of a meshing of gears between what people care about and what activates them. Because currently, I think what you're seeing with that low turnout is a lot of apathy. Uh, so activating what is currently apathetic and translating it into different outcomes than we're currently seeing. Thank you, Representative. Uh, just, I don't have a ton to add here. I, I do appreciate uh, Michael's optimism. I am hopeful that Republicans can take this and and turn it into messaging statewide and, you know, even nationally of looking at some of these progressive wins um, Democrats had in some of these local off-year elections and translating that into what is at risk? Should we not step up and offer alternatives and actual forward-looking policies and solutions for for our path forward here? So, um, it's it's frightening. I, I lived in St. Paul for about six years myself, and uh, to see, I mean, first off, I will give one quick shout out for. Uh, I don't know if all of the ranked choice votes are are completed, but at all women city council in St. Paul impressive, you know, go ladies. Um, but the, you know, we have six new DSA candidates on our city councils. Um, that, uh, is kind of frightening to know, uh, of how far left, uh, some of these new votes are going to be some of the policies they're going to put forward and what has potential, um, to get through, should they be successful with, with some of these new left-leaning, um, majorities on these councils. So only time will tell. And, um, Let's keep our fingers crossed that they're not overly successful in in their in their efforts. Now I want to break it down one more time as school board elections. So uh, for anybody who is a regular listener of the podcast, we recently had Christine Troyan on from the Minnesota Parents Alliance to talk through school board elections, their election guide, uh, a recent press release that they had um, read that parent-backed candidates were successful in Anoka Hennepin and Hastings School District. Um, and what we are seeing happening here in Minnesota and around the country when it comes to parental involvement and empowerment in our kids' lives is is certainly a top priority. So focusing on education, both at the school board level and just kind of as a policy as a whole, Priya, what are your takes when it comes to uh, education taking a top priority here um, at the polls? I, honestly, it's it's kind of a, a continuation of what we saw with Glenn Youngkin in 20 in the 2020 2021 uh election cycle in virginia it goes back to this idea that things are happening in our schools and in the school curriculum and just in general that frankly wasn't uh, an issue or a problem when we were in school when our parents were in school and it's concerning because schools have now taken the place of parents and, and doing what parents are supposed to be doing, which is raising their children. Schools have now taken over that authority. And parents are like, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. These issues that you're talking about in schools, these issues that you're teaching my child, they don't align with my values. But more importantly, when you look at what's going on in our schools holistically, right? Like, let's look at Minneapolis public schools. You're spending an average of, what, $26,000, $27,000 a year per student for their education. That is, you know, one year's tuition plus room and board at the University of Minnesota. 
but Minneapolis is one of the highest achievement gaps in the country. A, a kid who goes to Minneapolis public schools would have like a 5% chance of getting into Harvard compared to someone in, in a, a school district that one is spending a lot less on their students and has a better curriculum. And so I think when you combine these things together, what you're seeing is not a lot of bang for your buck and teachers and school districts and unions trying to politicize the classroom. They're trying to, in some ways, indoctrinate your kids. Meanwhile, these kids, when they graduate from high school, they have no prospects. A lot of them don't know if they're getting into college. They have no idea what they want to do. They can't balance a checkbook. They don't even know what a checkbook is. They have no idea how to do taxes. And they're just completely wholly unprepared for life after the classroom. And so I think when you look at all these things together, parents are like, wait a second, this isn't right. We need to take back the classroom. And I think that's been a message that's been very powerful for a lot of parents, especially in a post-COVID environment where they saw mental health cases amongst teenagers and, and school children go up significantly, where they saw the complete... Uh, iron fist in which teachers unions ruled the classrooms in a co post in a during COVID and post COVID environment, and, and they saw how it affected their kids. And they're like, "Well, we need to take a step back and reevaluate what's going on here. And how do we ensure children have success? If they're not going to do it, then we do." Fantastic. Now, Michael, obviously, uh, you know, we, we had a great conversation with Christine and I know you mm -hmm. were paying close attention to some of this. What are, what's your thought? Here's what I will say. I think at least in my political involvement in Minnesota, I think education in Minnesota has had a very strong hold over um, school board races, education policy. They are a real force in Minnesota. And what I think occurred this election cycle in school board races is that there was a there's a legitimate movement that's growing for another group to challenge America to challenge um, education Minnesota's hold on the purview of school board elections. I think the Minnesota Parents Alliance did a fantastic job um, in getting some key wins in some key districts and showed that they have. Um, some relevancy in this election process. I think that they were laser focused on opportunities that they could win and they did a good job. I will also say to you, I'm very surprised. Um, and just from a campaign finance perspective, Education Minnesota and DFL aligned groups in terms of school board races are very well financed. They are not short for money. The Minnesota Parents Alliance, I think, did a very small amount in comparison to what the, the Education Minnesota and the DFL groups did. is a true David versus Goliath situation. I was very surprised at how much, I've been very surprised as to how much messaging has been done by left-leaning or progressive media outlets to frame very aggressively what the Minnesota Parents Alliance accomplished on election day. And did they win every race? No. Was there any expectation that they were going to? No. Um, they're going up in a, they're outspent uh, in many ways, uh, they're they're behind on organizing, but they made a real race and won some races. And I think it's just very interesting to see who who went out on election day and reframed or wanted to package and message how successful the Minnesota Parents Alliance was. There were some legitimate victories. They won some races. They did not win all of them. But if the message, if the best message that they can come out of for allies of education, Minnesota, others is to say, the Minnesota Parents Alliance wasn't as successful as they wanted, that they hoped to be. That's the best they can do. I think that's an indication that this new group is gaining relevancy, it's gaining success, it's gaining momentum, and it's now got the attention of, I think, one of the most powerful political forces on education in this state. And um, it's going to be a real interesting to watch, and I think we're going to see good things uh, from the Minnesota Parent Alliance, and potentially other groups that get involved in school board races going forward. And I think that's great. I think we need more transparency. We need more voices. We need more discussion and more interest in these down-ballot rates. And uh, I thought that interview that we did with uh, with Christine for the Minnesota Parents Alliance was just fantastic. I was really impressed with the work that she did. And I'm glad that, that her organization had some, some good successes on Election Day. And I hope they give Education Minnesota a real run for their money. 
you know, love or hate uh, Minnesota Parents Alliance for whatever they what they stand for. I think any uh, organization that rises up to bring some contrast from some group like Education Minnesota, which has largely had the monopoly on on our school board races or or at least efforts in um, backing candidates in that regard, I think is really impressive, especially being so new, only two years old. Um, so always like to hear new conversations uh, being brought into important topics like education. Representative, your turn. I have this working theory uh, regarding political dynamics and it goes a little bit like this. The metaphor is a river, right? And the river flows in one direction. And that direction is reality. And uh, the left has to work really, really, really hard politically to secure their victories because they are driving upstream of reality. Uh, they have to, to flood the airwaves and um, carpet bomb narratives that obfuscate and obscure and outright lie about the issues and their opponents um, and everything in between. And I think that these results, and as Michael was stating, the, the attempts to spin them in the subsequent days are very illustrative of that. Uh, you, you Apparently, the bar for success for Minnesota Parents Alliance was 100% victory of like every yep. race that they <laughs> had anybody in. And if if they don't hit that, then that means that they're somehow not effective. Um, let's not take into consideration at all that David and Goliath dynamic. The fact that you have Education Minnesota has its offices in resplendent fashion right across the street from the Capitol. They, they are perhaps the most powerful lobbying entity in the state. I think that's probably a fair statement to say. Um, and they just got their butts kicked in local races by some moderately organized parents and concerned interests who just want their kids to be able to read without having smut put in front of their faces. Um, that tells you something about the, the achievability of victory when you simply row in the direction of the current and row in the direction of reality. Obviously, there's a lot of work yet to be done, um, and Education Minnesota is by no means, and their broader coalition is by no means going to roll over and um, allow this to, to go unanswered. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see you know, some lawfare attacks and other desperate measures taken to try to uh, attack Minnesota Parents Alliance. Um, but we need to be nimble and we need to respond to those things and and keep at it um, because the stakes are, these are the stakes. So I'm in St. Michael, Albertville, Wright County, largely regarded as one of the most conservative areas of the state. But you wouldn't know that by perusing our school library catalog or some of the school curriculum, or certainly by polling or spending a lot of time talking to our school board members. There is this, I talked earlier about the disconnect between where people are at and what their values are and the outcomes that they're seeing in both elections and policy. That gap may be no larger than it is between where people live, where they're at, and where their school board is, most likely currently. Um, this conservative area, this area that votes for people like me, Senator Eric Lucero, Donald Trump, and the like, 6535 okay um such an area should have a deep red conservative school board and conservative education policies it does not that right there tells you that there's a massive disconnect and the disconnect is intentionally created through the structure of how these elections work and the thumb on the scale that is uh, placed by Education Minnesota. And so fighting back, pushing back against them is absolutely essential. And any success in that regard, um, I applaud enthusiastically. Well, that was fascinating. Great points. Absolutely. All right. Now, uh, oh, John, can't forget about you. Uh, no, I think uh, looking at the Parents Alliance, I think that they had a pretty good night. And I think it takes a little bit of looking under the hood, uh, like a lot of these elections, right? You kind of get the uh, initial reaction on election night. Uh, you might feel a little bit of a punch in the gut. 
uh, similar to Virginia, right? Everybody's talking about what a letdown Virginia was. Well, if you take a, if you peel back the layers of that onion, Republicans in Virginia won every single district that Biden uh, won in 2020 by less than nine points, right? So if you take that, that is how far you know, upstream, uh, Republicans needed to go in order to get majorities in, uh, in the legislature there. Uh, so they actually, they ran great campaigns and they ran almost 10 points ahead of, uh, where Donald Trump was at uh, and flipped, held on to a lot of seats. Uh, so there's, you know, a lot of reason for optimism. If that happened in Minnesota, uh, the Minnesota House would probably be around 77 seats in the majority uh, if you were able to get every seat that Biden won by fewer than uh, 10%. Uh, but the same thing happens with the Parents Alliance. And when you start to look, you know, Representative Hudson talked about his school board. And if I was uh, advising the Parents Alliance, frankly, that's the type of place that I would have started. Uh, you go and you look for wins. You look for areas that you think would be uh, kind of in your wheelhouse where you can go and have those conversations with the voters and draw an easy parallel. They chose the more difficult way and they went straight into the belly of the beast. Uh, and I think that it's really impressive that they were able to capture a majority on the Anoka Hennepin School Board. Uh, that is, you know, definitely going to be an eye opener for Education Minnesota, I think, uh, that even in the Anoka Hennepin School Board, they've got to uh, be on their game. They've got to watch for uh, what this group is doing. Uh, they also were successful in Hastings. Uh, and these are places that, uh, have a lot of swing districts for the legislature. Uh, you've got, you know, the northern suburbs, the north metro in Anoka Hennepin. Uh, you've got the southeast metro in Hastings, uh, all places where we're going to see competitive legislative races next cycle uh, in the south metro. You know, I think you have kind of our last uh, swingy congressional district there. Uh, so there's uh, certainly something there. There's still, uh, you know, and it gets back to a lot of what we talked about with the mayoral race uh, in Duluth with the city council in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And it's what should the government be doing? Uh, and there's been kind of a loss, I think, uh, and parents feel it, where uh, less than half of Minnesota students can read and do math at grade level. Uh, that is the number one job of uh, our schools is to teach our kids how to read, write, do math, uh, start to prepare them for the world. And they have failed at that job uh, and they need to refocus and get back to the basics, get back to what's important. And I think that that's not a particularly divisive uh, thing to say. I think, you know, let Education Minnesota come out and explain why half of our students shouldn't be able to do math and why, you know, wanting our kids to be able to read is a bad thing. Uh, I challenge them to that. If they, if they want to stake out that position, they are welcome to it. Uh, so I think more to come from uh, the Parents Alliance, uh, but really impressed with the fact that they were able to go into the Anoka Hennepin uh, School District and have such a good night there. Absolutely. Great commentary. Now, I know we put you all a little bit on the spot. We were here to discuss the third presidential debate, so I appreciate you uh, hanging tight with us to, to chat through some of that local elections. And now it's the moment we've all been waiting for or the moment we've all been dreading. Depends on how you feel about what happened last night. So the breakdown of the third presidential debate on the Republican side. This week, we saw that debate uh, participants greatly pared down from what we have seen the last few. Going to do a quick round robin, chat through initial thoughts and maybe a favorite or least favorite moment, starting with my illustrious co-host, Mr. Bradwell. I'm going to be consistent and brief in saying that I believe that Nikki Haley had another Great debate performance. She has consistently shown tremendous poise and leadership on the debate stage. I think I've been consistent in saying that she's done a good job. And, and last night's debate was another indication of how I think that she would be the strongest candidate in a one-on-one -on -one race with former President Trump. I will say again that he did win a bit by not being on the debate stage. I think that the farther I get away from his initial decision to not participate, I continue to come to the conclusion that he made the right decision, at least politically in the short term, to not participate in the debates. And I think it is an exercise that I think that problem is going to need to be resolved at some point. I do wonder if there will be a debate between Trump and, and some of the other candidates at some point. I don't know. Uh, but I think Nikki Haley 
is taken every opportunity of not having Trump on the stage to show that she is a competent, credible, strong candidate and is, I think, provides at least to a number of Republicans who have concerns about Trump, like me, not to say others don't, but that is just a real strong contender. And I hope that she continues to have this type of success. This was the third debate. I thought we thought it was going to be the last, but they've just added a fourth. So we'll see. I I will say that my favorite moment is focused on uh, focusing on Nikki Haley, wanting to stay positive in this commentary. Uh, I think her debate performance and how she was treated by Vivek and how she responded to that was strong. And what was it's what's needed. Uh, my patience with him has diminished greatly. If I was on the debate stage, I probably would have taken his lunch money because he just seems to just bother me so much. But I think that she handled it very well. And I'm curious what the other panelists say. But again, my take is uh, great job by Nikki Haley. And again, we have to resolve the Trump issue. Is there going to be a debate with Trump? But staying focused, Nikki Haley and then Trump. I look forward to hearing other people's commentary. Representative, I know sometimes uh, you've had back and forth, maybe like the rest of us with Vivek. Do you agree with Michael or, or how did you take his his actions at Haley's and the rest of the crew? Yeah, it was a turning point for me and Vivek. And I'll, I'll expound upon that in just a second. But first, I want to kind of set the, the overall stage of where I'm at at this stage in the presidential primary debate, it really feels as though we're down to three actual candidates. You know, Christy and Scott were there and that's cool, but really we're we're talking about Vivek versus Haley versus DeSantis. And I've been kind of been struggling as I've been sitting here listening, trying to come up with some way to articulate um, my frustration. And I'm going to use a really nerdy pop culture reference, unfortunately. Um, but my, my frustration with where we're at as a movement, where we're at as a culture of conservatives, is that we don't seem to be able to bring uh, everything together. And we have these different, whether they're factions or, in this case, particular candidates who represent different aspects that we need each of these aspects. But you can't seem to get one person or one coalition that will just put it all together. And um, if you if you remember the old Nintendo games, the old Zelda games, there was this concept called the Triforce that was kind of mm-hmm. the MacGuffin at the center of it all, right? Yep. And the Triforce was divided into three parts. There was courage, wisdom, and power. And I kind of feel like that is a good metaphor for what the battle that we're seeing here within the Republican Party. With DeSantis, you have this display of courage. Look what I've done. Look what I'm capable of. Look what I'm willing to go out there and risk in order to achieve the things that you care about. With Haley, you have this display of wisdom. She has all this institutional knowledge. Um, She looks before she leaps. She's capable of articulating her positions very well. She does a very good job of, of displaying competence, institutional competence. And then with Vivek, you've just got this raw display of power of like, I, these, I care about the thing more than anybody else does. Um, and I think the reason why I'm not done with Vivek, but certainly less enthusiastic about him than I have been at any other point is because it's, it's increasingly clear the more that he talks and the more that we hear from him, the more divorced his display of power seems to be from those other two elements, right? Like, where's the courage? Where's the wisdom? Why is it that you increasingly sound like your chat GPT criticism, right? Like, it it really does. I got the sensation listening to Vivek last night that he struggles in every moment to try to figure out how can I most aggressively differentiate myself from everybody else? And whatever the answer to that question is, even if it contradicts something that he said in the past, that's what he's going to say. And so it it's hard to respect that, right? Because if somebody, if your opponent is saying something that you actually agree with or that corresponds with something that you've said in the past, what you should say is, I agree with that. This is why, and here's why I would do it better, Right. But that never seems to be his approach. His approach is always, how can I come up with some sort of rhetorical smoke bomb to make that person look bad? And, and you know, looking ahead at kind of like coalition building and being effective in the future, 
let's say somehow by some miracle, Vivek wins and he becomes the nominee and now he's the the standard bearer of the party. You kind of need those other people, right? Like you need yep. the DeSantis supporters and you need the Haley supporters and we need to come together at some point. So acting in such a way that you're, they're just going to hate you um, doesn't seem to be particularly productive. And that was kind of my, my broad takeaway from last night. John, what did you think of the third debate? So uh, my biggest takeaway is that I think the format was significantly improved compared yep. to the previous debates uh, where they had all of the candidates answer the same questions. Uh, we actually got to see where they differ from one another uh, on the debate. Uh, it was, you know, the thing that kind of kept coming up uh, in my head as I was watching is how far uh, the party has shifted. Uh, and Matt Walsh made a comment afterwards about, you know, how Nikki Haley would be a great candidate uh, as a Republican in 2004. Uh, and, you know, it's just fascinating to me that last night, you know, and I have a couple of notes, but we had two candidates who talked about entitlement reform. It was Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, right? The two probably more moderate people on that stage, uh, I think as you're looking at it, would probably be branded as rhinos by some and neocons by others and uh, certainly more moderate, are the only two who are talking about the fact that we have a serious entitlement reform uh, issue that is facing our country and staring us down. Uh, if you had told me that 10 years ago, that that would be the moderate position and kind of the fringe position and the you know, quote unquote, true conservatives would be arguing to leave Social Security and Medicare untouched. Uh, I would have thought that you were crazy, that you had lost your mind. Uh, another one was Tim Scott, you know, and he said it in his uh, in his opening, right, that he wants his campaign to be about getting America back to a place where we have faith in God, faith in our values and faith in America's future. That message is you know, I think where Republican primary voters would have used to be. Uh, but we've seen that the party has shifted, you know, I think away from conservatism and more towards populism. Uh, you know, I think there's this really unfortunate thing uh, that's happened since Donald Trump got elected in 2016, uh, where the standard for whether or not something is conservative is whether or not it triggers the libs. Right. There is this new goal where all that you need to do is own the libs and trigger people and say something that is outrageous, uh, regardless of where it falls on the actual uh, precedent of conservatism and where we'd been in the past. Uh, so I think yeah, that really kind of sh uh, shined through for me uh, when we were able to kind of hear from each of these candidates. Uh, you know, I don't know that there was a winner. I think Ron DeSantis had a better night uh, again. He kind of continues to move in that direction. Uh, you know, I wish that Chris Christie had a purpose for being on that stage other than to be the smartest guy on a debate stage uh, and to throw rocks at Donald Trump. Uh, because I think he had, you know, God, you see him up there and he is a very good political athlete, right? He is able to work a debate stage. He is able to have uh, conversations very comfortably about a wide range of issues. Uh, and if you had told me that the most moderate guy on the stage would be talking about zero-based budgeting and entitlement reform uh, and would be the only one who's out there talking about that, you know, I, it's just amazing to me how much our party has shifted. Uh, but I was encouraged by the level of support that we saw from the field for uh, the Jewish state of Israel. Uh, you know, I think that there had been questions about Vivek and where he was on that, depending on uh, who he was talking to and when. Uh, I'm still not certain that I understand uh, Governor Haley's uh, comment about her heels for ammunition. Uh, you know, I think she had kind of a good witty retort there about how you don't wear the heels if you can't run in them. But uh, I have no idea. Maybe somebody can clue me in on what heels for ammunition means. Uh, yeah, but uh, overall, I thought it was better. Uh, and you know, we get another debate uh, after this that'll be on the CW. Uh, so congratulations to the CW on finding a new. Uh, thing to put on TV that'll get lower ratings than the Saudi Golf League that they host on the CW. So 
Uh, wow. We'll see how that goes. But I'm uh, excited about some of the moderators, uh, particularly with Megan Kelly next time. I think she's uh, proven herself in the past to be a good debate moderator. Uh, and we'll see if that field shrinks down to uh, you know, three or four by that point. All right. Our resident Nikki Haley gal, Priya, any any insight into the weapon ammunition line other than it was pretty witty? It was pretty witty. But also, I mean, if you've ever worn heels, you know automatically that it's a nice weapon to have in case something <laughs> in case something goes wrong. You don't have to reload. There's there's no issues there. It's going to hurt if you kick somebody with them. So, uh I think that was the point she was trying to make. But, you know, to Michael's point and everyone's point, I, Nikki, I think, came across as the clear winner uh, of the debate last night. When you when it came to just being honest with the American people, Nikki had some very hard truths for folks, whether it was on entitlement reforms or whether it's about America's place on foreign policy or if it was on economy or abortion. Um she had some hard truths for Americans last night and it was very well received. You know, I, I think, you know, Walter kind of talks about, uh, you know, this quote unquote Ron DeSantis courage where he talks about all these things that he's done. And, it, you know, it, it kind of makes me laugh because this is an argument that they make over and over again. Uh, but it kind of makes me laugh because, you know, if you've got a super majority in your state legislature, you can just about do anything. Right. Um, we know here in Minnesota that when you've got a trifecta, the governor gets to do whatever he wants and, and Republicans just kind of have to sit back and watch. And it's the same thing in Florida. You know, DeSantis has a, a supermajority. He's able to do whatever he wants. He just has to say jump in and they say how high. That's not what's going to happen if he goes to the White House. That's not going to happen when your Congress is split almost evenly down the line. You've got a very slim majority in the House. Democrats have a slim majority in the Senate. You gotta have to have some bipartisan backing in order to get anything done, and you're just not gonna get it done by you know bullying your way through. And so a lot of this talk that we saw from Nikki last night about building consensus and finding where we can get the votes needed to get this stuff done, I think that is kind of where Americans are really looking for a candidate to lead because you know as we kind of seen with local races. We've seen so many people so far to the right or so far to the left, and they don't really represent anyone. And you have all these people just sitting in the middle who are like, okay, but where's the person who represents my values and the things that I care about and the things we need to get done? And I think that's where Nikki Lane has been. It's why she continues to to coalesce and build support. Uh, and I think it's why she's solidly in second place in a lot of these early states. So. Um, another great night for her. I think DeSantis kind of disappeared on the stage again and uh, kind of forgot everybody else was there except for Vivek, who who thought he could uh, be your, I don't know, class president, as, <laughs> your high school class president, as some called him. So, um, yeah. You know, I certainly um, agree with a lot of what everybody has already said, so I'm not going to reiterate a bunch. I, I will say, I think obviously the format with fewer people, you do get to hear more from each individual. They range from about 16 to 19 minutes a piece that they spoke, um, which was great. Uh, I, I My biggest issue is that they didn't take enough aim at President Trump. I mean, I think that's one thing that... Um, when we when we talk about the topics that were hit the most, uh, abortion was hit the most with eight minutes. Nikki Haley knocked it out of the park, I think, on the way she went about that. Um, and, and, you know, still being able to say that we are pro-life, but we do need to support women. We need to have more compassion and, and less judgment when it comes to abortion. And um I think Christy kind of echoed with leaving it up to the states. Um, I love my man, Christy, but I do agree. I, I think that he, uh, in, from my mind, will be probably uh, one of the next ones to hopefully drop out and whittle this down a little bit more. Um, Vivek, you know, I think last time I said gave me the ick. He certainly did this time, both from the sexist, you know, women in heels on the stage comment to also taking that attack at Haley's daughter and TikTok. I mean, just unnecessary. Kids are off limits. Completely inappropriate. Got a lot of groans and boos from the audience. Um, just really irked me when he did that. Also, I mean, he's obviously got his pre-planned lines that calling for Rana to resi resign as she's sitting in the front row plan the debate is just... 
Oh, can't can't get enough of of his ick factor here. Um, I mentioned I think that uh, you know I, I think a couple of you mentioned why or Christie or, or Tim Scott there. I do believe Christie will probably be you know dropping out here. I don't know if he'll make it to Iowa, but uh, want to get into your takes on this. We have seen a number of you know pens dropped out. We're we're whittling this down. We have a smaller crew here. Um, who do we think is going to be the next to drop out, and who are your takes on? Who's going to hold on strong through Iowa? Representative, we're going to kick it over to you to start. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think my answer will be at all surprising and perhaps not controversial. I think Tim Scott is probably the next on the chopping block. Um, he seemed to be the the least relevant participant last night. And um, there's a pretty lengthy tweet from Steve Dace, who's a pretty influential commentator in Iowa, who was in attendance in the live audience last night and uh, made kind of that from that perspective, the observation that in the in the moments when the cameras weren't on them, uh, there there seemed to be kind of this buddy buddy thing between Haley and Christie and s- between DeSantis and Vivek, but nobody was really talking to Tim Scott. He's kind of off on his own, right? I think that's uh, perhaps an anecdotal indicator that he's next on the drop off list. Um, obviously, DeSantis has got a very strong ground game in Iowa, and he's going to persist. Uh, I'm sure Haley will continue to get. Uh, and, and earn support from that 2004 GOP crowd that's <laughs> die hard, you know. Uh, so she'll probably be around. And as far as Vivek, you know, I I I think he'll stick around simply because there there's always that he speaks to something that does need to be articulated, and and that is the the soul of our nation and subsequently the soul of our party that is not really well addressed by the other candidates. Um, and so, you know, he may be an imperfect messenger in that regard, but I think because he's loud and because he's addressing that kind of unstated, untouched aspect of um, our cultural moment, he will persist for better or worse. John, your take on the matter. Uh, so I think my bet for who drops out next wasn't on the stage last night. Uh, people might have forgotten that uh, Governor Burgum and Governor Hutchinson are still running. Uh, they could be forgiven for forgetting that. Uh, but I think Governor Hutchinson is probably next to go. Uh, and, you know, I've said it before, but you don't end a presidential campaign because you're done running. You end it because you run out of money. Uh and so I will be very curious to see Governor DeSantis's fundraising uh, this quarter and what that means for his team. Uh, it's clear that he you know, really kind of did what we see a lot of governors do and overbuilt a uh, program. Uh, they've shifted a lot of those resources into Iowa. Uh, we've seen Tim Scott shift a lot of resources into Iowa. Uh you know, Tim Scott went on a spending spree last quarter, uh, but had about $12 million on hand that he could use uh, in the primary. DeSantis had, I think, $5 million on hand that he could use for the primary, and he was spending a lot more than that uh, in a quarter. Uh, so we'll be able to see you know, how many of his donors are those small dollars uh, that are kind of a renewable resource that you can go back to and tap over and over. Uh, I know he's gotten very creative with how you can use outside groups, uh, but I think Hutchinson probably drops next. I think Tim Scott's probably in through Iowa, uh, and I think Christie probably you know, has built enough of a skeleton crew that he can survive. Uh, so the thing that I'll be watching is what do they do uh, about participation on the next debate stage? Uh, because I think it's likely that all of these candidates survive for the next month, uh, but whether or not they you know, survive and occupy any actual space on that debate stage uh, remains to be seen. But I think uh, there's a lot of people who are all in on Iowa, and until they run out of money, uh, I wouldn't expect them to go anywhere anytime soon. Priya, anything to add? Any inside scoop for us? I don't think anybody drops out before Iowa. Uh, Vivek has gotten an apartment in Des Moines and is shifting all of his resources to Iowa. DeSantis is moving staff from Tallahassee to Iowa. Tim Scott is moving all of his folks to Iowa. Uh, 
Asa Hutchinson's campaign manager quit on October 31st because he disagreed with the governor on their path forward, aka the campaign manager didn't think they had a path forward, and so he left. Uh, Asa Hutchinson clearly wants to move forward, so I think he's going to still stay in the race. I think Christie will try to stay in through New Hampshire because that's where his bread and butter lies. Uh, and, you know, I think Doug Burgum just has the money to spend and has no problem doing it. And so he'll stay in as long as he wants. Michael, anything to add from you? I would say that um, I would hope that the next debate um, will increase um, and heighten some of the standards for participants to get in. I, I agree with, I also agree, Burgum, Hutchinson, and some of these candidates should drop. I, I think Prey makes a good point about some of them likely won't. But I hope um, that there is a renewed focus on limiting the next debate so we can have more of a substantive discussion. I will say, and that's something we've talked about before, there were far too many candidates in the, the first debate, the second debate, that was winnowed down a little bit last night. I thought the debate was more substantive. I do not think that there's a path for all but maybe one or two of these candidates to credibly challenge former President Trump for the nomination. But as John pointed out, candidates get out not because they because they run out of money. And there's a whole business operation here that in funding these campaigns, these candidates are focused on. Uh, and so I would hope that some of these candidates would drop out. I think Prey is right. It's unlikely. But I think what is incumbent then upon the RNC when they're scheduled, when they're planning for this fourth debate is to recognize that I think this format was better. I think the moderators did a better job. And I think having reduced the number of candidates and, and having a higher standard of getting on the debate stage is overall value added to the party and the messaging and the attention. And I hope that's where they go. And so whether they get out or they don't, I do think that the RNC should have a higher standard. So the debate, the trajectory of the debate is more focused on policy and there can be more discussion because uh, opening the debate up to candidates who did not qualify this past time, uh, I think would only be a mistake. And as we get closer to Iowa and some of the, the, the actual voting next year, I think we need more attention on credible candidates that actually have a place. And that's a very small number at this point. I do not have anything significant to add to that. I, I do want to just real quick in closing, um, talk about Donald Trump. Uh, this week, the Minnesota Supreme Court issued their order regarding President Trump on the ballot. They dismissed the petition that sought to keep him off the ballot in the presidential primary, essentially leaving the door open by just saying that the primary is a party function. Um, is only pretty much administrative function um, and for the state. And so it's up to the parties to decide the names on the ballot, which was our role when I was at the at the state party. We do hand that over to the Secretary of State. Um, essentially does leave the door open, though, if President Trump becomes the nominee, the petitioners can bring forth uh, a, their case ahead of the general election. Um, I'm just going to throw it open. Uh, whoever, if anybody wants to jump in, anybody have any thoughts, comments, issues, on, on this hearing or on this order that was brought down this week? The only thing I'll say very quickly is that I think that the court left open the opportunity for it to come back. And I think the Democrats, I think there will be a, an effort to come back and rebring the lawsuit. So I don't think the, the legal maneuvering by whoever's behind this is done. I think we'll see another challenge to President Trump on the ballot here in Minnesota. And the only thing I'll say is there is the potential for some other cases, I think, to proceed farther along. I do still believe, piggybacking on Becky, our conversation with Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, I do believe this ends up in this United States Supreme Court at some point, whether it's a Minnesota case or it's another case, that is ultimately what brings it there. I don't know. But I don't think that the Minnesota Supreme Court closed the door on legal action. And I would expect if there's still, if he's still in the race, and there hasn't been a case that's already shot it up to the Minnesota Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court that there'll be more legal action in Minnesota. Yeah, they very clearly punted. And um, there's there's no real rational justification for either side to spike the football on this because um, there has been no definitive uh, conclusion stated as to which side ultimately would prevail um, if this were to be challenged for the general election. But my, I think my broader observation is, you know, it's one thing for the left to characterize what happened on January 6th as an insurrection, as a piece of political rhetoric. It's another thing to present that 
as a legal fact that you're utilizing in a case to affect something like whether or not could be, somebody can be placed on on a political ballot. And so ultimately, I think what we're going to, however this resolves, um, what we're going to see is whether or not the the legal system will legitimize the characterization of a violent riot that should not have happened, um, that was connected but not necessarily directed by a political campaign as an actual military insurrection attempting to overthrow the United States government. I think that characterization has always been absurdly broad, um, but we'll see whether or not the Supreme Court ultimately agrees. Right. Yeah, I think good riddance uh, that, you know, it got punted on. Uh, this has always seemed like a pretty fringe, uh, you know, effort in throwing a candidate off the ballot using an untested legal theory. Uh, really, I think, uh, is something that only aids uh, Donald Trump, right? The more that he can mm -hmm. point and say, they don't even want me on the ballot. They're afraid of me. Uh, that helps him with his base. So the people that this helps are the left-wing organizations who want to get their speaking time on MSNBC and raise money from boomers. And it helps Donald Trump say they're all out to get me. Uh, so, you know, I think this was rightfully dismissed at this point. Uh, hopefully it continues forward. We can settle this with elections, which is how we solve these issues in America. Uh, we do not put our opponents in jail. We do not remove them from the ballot. Uh, and if the Democrats are so confident that Donald Trump will lose, then run against him. Uh, what we've seen is that Joe Biden is losing to him. They should take a look and figure out why they're running a candidate uh, who, frankly, is unimpressive and uh, gives Donald Trump the best chance to win the presidency uh, and spend less time trying to use untested novel legal theories to throw him off the ballot. And, and to Michael's point, just to piggyback for a quick second, they too are uh, – they're cherry picking which jurisdictions they try this legal theory out. It's not just Minnesota. It's Colorado. It's Michigan. What do they all have in common? They have judicial, uh, you know, they have judges who are handpicked or elected um, or appointed by Democrats. It's there by design. And obviously I'm a Nikki Haley supporter. I don't want to see him on the ballot. But even like, I think we can all look at this and say what it is for what it is, is they are cherry picking this. They're trying to ensure that he isn't on the ballot by any means necessary. They're trying a number of legal theories, whether it's having Democrats come forward with this, whether it's having Republicans and independent voters come up with it, whether it's, you know, trying different legal theories. They're trying to see what sticks and what works so they can have this conversation again next year. Uh, so by no stretch of the means is this over with. Uh, it's going to continue to be a process, especially as uh, the former president spends more time in the courtroom than on the campaign trail. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens. I just want to say thank you again. It is remarkable, your analysis and commentary for another episode on the debates and stuff. I learned so much by hearing you guys talk, and I'm so appreciative and thankful that you would spend time sharing your analysis again on the debate. Incredibly insightful. I took a lot of notes. I learned a lot from listening to you guys, and it's a great episode because I hardly say anything because I sit and listen and learn. I will also say, unfortunately, there is a fourth debate. So we have to do this one more time, at least one more time, because I think it's what's so important to Becky and I and to our listeners is we can now package and look at the totality of your analysis and see how it's changed. And having these episodes, it's incredibly just impactful. And, and it really provides, I think, a good resource and backstory to the race that's going on and from informed and intelligent perspectives that you all have. And so thank you again. And in my closing, I just want to echo that. I think it's an incredible to have a variety of opinions from folks from a variety of different backgrounds across this, you know, both local, statewide, national. Um, I think it really helps have a, a variety of aspects of or a variety of opinions on all of this. So thank you guys all so much. I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us out of your day jobs to once again uh, participate in this panel with the breakdown of with of the breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky. Of course, thank you for all of you listening. We appreciate it. If you want to show some love for your favorite podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can leave a review at, on our website at bbbreakpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at bbbreakpod. The breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky will return next week. Have a great one. Bye.